Okay, folks. It's hard to keep the flock together. There's just too many seminars, too many seminars out there. Everybody wants to grab a little piece of each one. Yes? Okay. Right. Oh, we're going to talk about the judgments now. We're going to talk about the different stages of the judgment. But just to give you a quick answer, we are now in the investigative stage. At the second coming is the executive stage, which means that, that the judgment sentence is implemented in favor of God's people. So there is an execution of the investigative stage now, because people receive the rewards. That's the execution of the, of the judgment. It's like when a judgment, you know, they, uh, they're deciding whether an individual uh, gets $10 million. You know, the trial goes through, and then the time comes, say, pay up. Give them the $10 million. That's when the judgment execution takes place. Then during the thousand years, we're, we're going to examine the cases of Satan and his angels and the wicked. And then after the millennium, the wicked are going to see the record of their own lives. And then you're going to have the executive, the executive stage of the judgment of the wicked. So you have investigation, execution, investigation, execution. But, but we'll come to that. that. That's something that I want to deal with during this hour. Okay, go with me to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. Here the Apostle Peter says, Repent, repent therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be forgiven. Sometimes I'll read wrongly because I want to make a point. It doesn't say, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be forgiven. It says that your sins may be blotted out. Now that's a different word than the word that is translated remission. The word remission or forgiveness is aphesis. The word blotted out here is the Greek word hexalepo, which means to eradicate, to blot out, to erase. Now, is that referring to the same issue of forgiveness of sins? No. Let's continue reading the verse. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, See, the verbs are in present. Repent and be converted are present. That your sins may be blotted out. It's speaking about a future event. And what happens when the sins are blotted out? It says, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. What are those times of refreshing that come from the presence of the Lord? The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Which outpouring is being described here? The outpouring at Pentecost or the final outpouring? Yes. So this must be referring to what? It must be referring to the latter rain. Let's continue reading and you'll see. It says, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out 
So that, do sins have to be blotted out so that this can happen? Sure. So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may what? Send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. Do you see the sequence there? Repent and converted that your sins may be blotted out that you might receive the times of refreshing and that Jesus might what? Might come. So Peter is here is pointing to something that is going to take place when? That is going to take place in the future. He's not talking about the forgiveness of sin. Did Peter already say repent for the forgiveness of sin? We already noticed that in Acts chapter 2 verse 38. He says repent for the forgiveness of sin. But now he says repent and be converted that your sins may be what? may be blotted out. When is it that sins were blotted out from the sanctuary? What happened in the daily service with sin, according to what we've studied? The daily service. What happened with sin? Sin was forgiven, right? And transferred into the sanctuary. When were those sins blotted out? On the Day of Atonement. So Peter is pointing here forward to what? To the Day of Atonement. When sin, when those sins that enter the sanctuary are going to be what? Are going to be blotted out. By the way, something very interesting when you read the book of Leviticus. In the book of Leviticus, the first 15 chapters, there are several words that are used to describe sin. Sin, iniquity, transgression, uncleanness are, are the words yeah, that are used to describe sin. But do you know what's interesting? In the first 15 chapters, almost always, these words are used in singular. It's not sins, it's sin. It's not transgressions, it's transgression. It's not uncleannesses. It is uncleanness. In other words, these words are in singular. Do you know why? Because those who are in view in the daily service are the individuals. The individual places his sin, his transgression, his uncleanness in the sanctuary. But if you look at Leviticus chapter 16, these same words are used in plural. Transgressions. Sins, uncleannesses. Why would they be used in plural in Leviticus 16? Because many individuals have introduced those things into the sanctuary. By the way, in the daily service, the sins moved from east to west. On the Day of Atonement, sins moved from west to east. Those who say that, that, that God does not keep a record of sin in the heavenly sanctuary, they're at a loss to explain how, on the Day of Atonement, 
the sanctuary was cleansed from sins and transgressions and from uncleannesses. You can't cleanse the sanctuary from all of those things unless those things have gone in there. Right? How can you cleanse the sanctuary from sins, transgressions, etc., if those things didn't go in there? The fact is that in the first 15 chapters of Leviticus, the emphasis is on the going in of sin. Whereas in Leviticus chapter 16, which is the Day of Atonement, the emphasis is on those sins, what? Coming out. In fact, let me read you a couple of statements here from the Spirit of Prophecy. By the way, do the heavenly intelligences have anything to do with this heavenly judgment of uh, taking the sins uh, and cleansing the sanctuary? Are they observing what's happening? Of course they are. What, what was embroidered on the veil between the holy and the most holy place? Angels. What do you suppose they're doing there? Are they watching what's happening? In symbol, they're on the veil. Actually, they're, they're embroidered in different places of the sanctuary. There, you have the two cherubim, remember? Plus Solomon added two, four, two more, so there were actually four in Solomon's temple. And what are they doing? They're looking down towards God's holy law. See, they're, they're, the angelic host is watching how God resolves the problem of sin. Notice this statement. As the sins of the people, the faith I live by, page 206, as the sins of the people were anciently transferred in figure to the earthly sanctuary by the blood of the sin offering, so our sins are, in fact, transferred to the heavenly sanctuary by the blood of Christ. And as the typical cleansing of the earthly was accomplished by the removal of the sins by which it had been polluted, so the actual cleansing of the heavenly is to be accomplished by the removal or blotting out of the sins which are there recorded. This necessitates an examination of the books of record to determine who, notice this, through repentance of sin and faith in Christ are entitled to the benefits of his atonement. See, once again, in the Most Holy Place ministry, what is the purpose of the, purpose of the Day of Atonement? It's to open up the books and show who is entitled to the benefits of the atonement that Christ made. Where did Jesus make that atonement? At the cross. See, some people say, the Day of Atonement was when Jesus died at the cross. Yes, the sacrificial aspect of the Day of Atonement was the death of Jesus on the cross. But just because the sacrificial aspect of the Day of Atonement took place at the cross doesn't mean that the judgment took place at the cross. Are you with me? You know, the picture is, is beautiful. It's found in Zechariah chapter 3 where Joshua is standing in filthy garments. Ellen White says that this applies directly to the final scenes of the Day of Atonement in Patriarch, Prophets and Kings. He's standing there with these dirty garments. And the devil is standing by his side saying, He's filthy. Look, he's filthy. He's mine. And the angel of the Lord, who by the way is Jesus, says to Satan, The Lord rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the burning? 
And then he says, take off those filthy garments and clothe him with glorious, radiant, clean garments. That's what happens on the Day of Atonement. And so when Jesus comes and we go to the married supper of the Lamb, everybody will have their what? Their white garment. By the way, do you know that garments are assigned before we actually get to heaven? Let me, give, let, let me illustrate that point. You remember the martyrs who, who were crying out from under the altar? Those of you who have read the book of Revelation, there were some martyrs that were crying out, until when, O oh Lord, do you not judge and avenge our blood on those who shed it upon the earth? And what is given to them? It says in Revelation 6 that white robes, a white robe was given to each of them. Don't miss this point. And they were told to rest a while until the rest of the martyrs who would be going to be killed like they were was complete. Do, are they given the white garment while they're dead? Yes, they are. They were given a white garment and they were told to rest until the rest of the martyrs should be killed. So they have the white garment while they're dead. But let me ask you, is the day coming when their garments are going to be examined? To see whether they have the white garment? Sure. Remember Jesus once told a parable, a very interesting parable, of the king who came to examine the garments of the wedding guests. It's found in Matthew chapter 22. Was a special garment sent out to everyone who was invited to the wedding? Of course. Everybody showed up with the, with the robe that had been provided by the one who had invited to the wedding. But did the king then examine each guest to see if the guest was clothed with the special garment that had been sent out before? Yes. And so he finds one man who didn't have on the wedding garment. I suppose that guy must have sneaked into heaven. Of course not. Did he sneak into heaven? Is there going to be anyone in that day where he whoa, this guy doesn't have a garment. He shouldn't be here. No, that's not what it's talking about. You see, the garment represents the character of the person, whether, whether the robes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. So the garment is given to you. If you've confessed your sins, if you've repented of your sins, you've placed them in the sanctuary, if you should die, you're given a white robe. And then when your name comes up in the judgment, you're examined to see if your life merits having the robe. Are you following me or not? And so, what happens in the judgment is God examines people to see if they have the robe. Then of course when Jesus comes, he's going to give you the real thing. It's not only going to be a symbolic robe, he's going to give you a robe of light like Adam and Eve had to live in his presence forever. Now listen to this statement. Great Controversy 421 and 422. As anciently the sins of the people were by faith placed upon the sin offering and through its blood transferred in figure to the earthly sanctuary, so in the new covenant the sins of the repentant are by faith placed upon Christ and transferred in fact to the heavenly sanctuary. 
And as the typical cleansing of the earthly was accomplished by the removal of the sins by which it had been polluted, so the actual cleansing of the heavenly is to be accomplished by the removal or blotting out, notice the expression, or blotting out of the sins which are there recorded. But before this can be accomplished, there must be an examination of the books of record to determine who, through repentance of sin and faith in Christ, are entitled to the benefits of His atonement. The cleansing of the sanctuary therefore involves a work of investigation, a work of judgment. This work must be performed prior to the coming of Christ to redeem His people. For when he comes, his reward is with him to give to every man according to his works. Let me give you an illustration. I I worked for six years in the New Jersey Conference, and many times, instead of driving to New York City, I would take the train from Trenton. And um, I would buy my ticket at the station, and take it into the train. They wouldn't ask for it before you went into the train. You go into the train with the ticket and they had a kind of a little uh, pocket at the top at the back of each chair and so you would stick your ticket there and then once you the train was rolling uh, the the individual in charge would come and he would pick up all of the tickets at the seats now let me ask you this if I bought the ticket did I need to be afraid when this guy came through the train looking for the tickets oh he's coming <laughs> I'm dying of fright. Of course not. When did I have to fear? If I had bought the ticket. Right? Now, are we to be afraid that Jesus is going to come through the train looking for a ticket? Not as long as you bought it. But if you haven't bought it, then he's going to come and examine and he's going to, he's going to find you wanting. Are you following me or not? So do you understand what happens on the Day of Atonement? Is it an indispensable aspect of God vindicating His character before the universe? Is God going to show that in each individual case He has been just and He has been merciful, He's done everything just right? Absolutely. And all of the heavenly intelligences now are watching each individual case. Not for God's sake, but for theirs. See, people say to Adventists, oh, how can you believe that God keeps records? God knows everything. Yeah, God does, but we don't. And so he's going to examine every single, every single case. And he's going to, before the heavenly beings, he's going to say, saved or lost? What do you say? It's up to you. Saved. By the way, have you ever noticed that Jesus says that whoever accepts him, he will confess their name before the holy angels? Notice it doesn't say he's going to show them before the Holy... He's going to confess their name. In other words, what comes up in the judgment is our name, not us. See, there's all these hints in the Gospels that it's not us in person. When the Bible says that, we're, that we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, don't think I'm going to take some rocket up there. You know, and I, I have to go up there somehow personally. No, I go through my records. And by the way, there's a certain sense... Listen to what I'm going to say. There's a certain sense in which I appear before the judgment seat of Christ alive. Now wait a minute. Well, let me explain it this way. 
I believe that God has, say, a DVD. This is the best thing that we can use as an illustration. Say, how do you know that, Pastor? Because in a few moments we're going to notice that God, after the millennium, is going to show the whole history of the world, Ellen White says, says in panoramic view above the city. He's going to reenact the whole history of the human race. That's a moving picture, in case you were wondering. And so, what God does is, you know, He keeps an exact record. And when God calls Adam, for example, in 1844, first one to be judged, Adam, present yourself before my judgment seat. Well, the DVD of Adam's life is brought, is placed in the DVD player, and is seen on the screen. Let me ask you, is there a certain sense in which Adam is appearing there alive? Sure. Because it was the record of his life while he was what? While he was alive. Now, it's after he's dead, but, it's being, but the record is being presented while he was alive. How many of you have seen that little clip of the uh, assassination of John F. Kennedy? The Sapruder film, the famous Sapruder. Just a few seconds. You know, so when you look at that clip, is John F. Kennedy alive or is he dead? I always ask that question because somebody says, alive, dead. The fact is that you're watching the clip and he's alive. But you're watching it after he's dead. That's the way it happens in the judgment. In the judgment, the record of the person while he was alive is presented. But they're actually physically, personally dead. Does that help us understand the state of the dead? It most certainly does. Suddenly, you know, I had an individual write me an email recently that, that listened to that presentation, Audioverse. And he actually wrote a book. This is not, a, not an Adventist guy. He'd written a book on, on uh, medical ethics. You know, the, the thing of euthanasia, death and dying, and things like that. And he wrote to me, he says, you know, this is an amazing presentation. Um, I've written a book. He says, I'm wondering if, you, if, if I could put your name on the book as a co-author, and I could include this material. And I said, well, send me the book first. <laughs> and he sent me the book. It's actually a very, very good book. Excellent book. You know, he's a medical doctor. And uh, he knows a lot about physiology, which, which helps his argument. Uh, but, you know, it's such a simple way of explaining the judgment. Even a child can understand it. Okay, now, let's go now to the transfer of judgment from the sanctuary to the scapegoat. What sins were placed on the scapegoat? The ones that had gone into the sanctuary through the blood or the ones that had not gone into the sanctuary by the blood? The only sins that were placed upon the head of the, of the scapegoat were the sins that had entered the sanctuary through the blood. Only the sins of the righteous. The Bible says that those who did not sympathize with the work of the high priest were cut off from the congregation. They had to suffer their own retribution. Only the sins that had entered the sanctuary through the blood were blotted out from the sanctuary. Now, only
only Seventh-day Adventists can explain something very important about Christ that no other church can explain because they don't understand this aspect of the sanctuary service. Let me ask you, when the Bible says the wages of sin is death, is that talking about physical death or is that talking about eternal death? It's eternal death, right? Second death, if you please. What is second death? It's eternal what? Eternal separation from God, right? Would you agree? That second death is eternal separation from God? Death from which there will be no what? No resurrection. You all agree with that? Did Jesus suffer that death? Then why is he alive? Are you understanding my question or not? Only the Adventist Church can answer that question. Yes. I mean, he died because of our sins. Sure. He's resurrected because of his life. But the thing is, he still had to pay the penalty for our sins. And what is the penalty for our sins? Second death. So he would have had to suffer that death to pay my debt. So the question is, why isn't Jesus now dead, separated from God? The reason is because of the scapegoat ceremony. You see, the ultimate responsibility, the ultimate separation from God, is going to suffered by those, be suffered by those who did not place their sins in the sanctuary, and also, by the way, when I say those who did not place their sins in the sanctuary, they're going to die they're going to die for their own sins. But all of the sins that enter the sanctuary are brought out and placed where? On the head of the scapegoat. And he will suffer ultimate separation. From who? From God. As the originator and the instigator of sin. As the one who is ultimately responsible for the origin of sin. He will be totally banished forever from the presence of God. Are you following me or not? Now, let's read Hebrews 9, verses 27 and 28. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once, with what purpose? To bear the sins of many. To bear the sins of many where? He was offered to bear the sins of many. Was offered past to bear is a present tense. What does Jesus do in consequence of his death? He bears the sins where? Into where? Into the sanctuary. But what happens shortly before Jesus returns? All of those sins that he bore in are going to be what? Brought out. And notice the last part of verse 28. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, what? 
apart from sin for salvation. So will sin have been eradicated from the sanctuary and from Christ when he returns again? That's what it says. He will return a second time, what? Apart from sin. Some people say, well, then you believe that Satan is our savior. No, for several reasons. Reason number one, the sanctuary had already been cleansed before the sins were placed on the head of the scapegoat. Read Leviticus 16. The sanctuary is cleansed and then there the sins are placed on the head of the scapegoat. Furthermore, the live goat was not sacrificed and without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. One goat had already been sacrificed for sin. That represents Jesus, the first goat. The second goat is not sacrificed. So the shedding of the blood of the first goat redeems, allows the cleansing of the sanctuary. The second goat is sent alive. And he's sent alive where? Two characteristics. To the wilderness, to a non-inhabited land. Wilderness, not inhabited land. By the way, it's very clear that, uh, that the two goats are opposites because it says one will be chosen for the Lord and the other for Azazel. If they're both for the Lord, why would you, don't, you, don't you just say choose both for the Lord? One is for the Lord and the other is for Azazel. By the way, Jewish tradition almost unanimously agrees that Azazel, the scapegoat, was a symbol of a malignant evil force, the originator and instigator of evil. You can read it, for example, in the apocryphal book of Enoch. It speaks about Azazel being the arch enemy of God. So the Jews understood that he was a symbol of the evil one. So let me ask you, at this point, are all of the heavenly beings convinced that God was right in the way that he dealt with the righteous? With every single case. Yes or no? Of course. Listen, the purpose of the pre-advent heavenly judgment is to convince the heavenly beings that God has been just and merciful in dealing with every single case. That's why every case is examined. When the judgment finishes, they're all on the same page. These are the people that you can bring to heaven. Are you following but then, there's another group that has been left behind. Who are those? Satan and his angels. By the way, uh, where is the Azazel ceremony fulfilled in Revelation? Revelation 21 to 3 speaks about a powerful angel coming down from heaven and he binds the devil and Satan places him in the bottomless, in the bad translation, bottomless pit. It really is the abusos. It's the same Greek equivalent of the word tehom in Genesis 1 verse 2, where it speaks about the deep, the earth without form and void and in darkness. And by the way, during the millennium, it is a non-inhabited land because all of the wicked are dead. That's where the Azazel ceremony is finally fulfilled during the millennium. The devil is forced to stay in a non-inhabited world. By the way, he went through this experience once before. 
at the time of the flood. The, flood, the, the earth returned to the condition it was in before creation, covered with water, dark, without form and void. And Ellen White says that the devil was forced to remain on planet earth and he feared for his life and all of his followers were dead. Interesting. Now who? Pardon me? Yes, his angels. Uh, yeah, you can read in Isaiah chapter 24, verses 21 to 23, it, it refers to his angels as well. But the central focus of Revelation is upon the work that the dragon does. See, he's the ringleader, he's the head. So that's the reason why it's emphasized that he is the one. And by the way, he did not originate sin. He originated sin, the angels didn't. So he's the one that is, that is especially considered. Now, what groups have not been convinced yet? Are all the heavenly beings convinced now that God is right in taking these people home? Sure. Why, is there, why doesn't God judge the wicked before the second coming too? Because there's no urgency. See, the reason he judges the righteous before the second coming is because he's got to take them with him. Before he can take them with him, he has to determine who they are. Is there any urgency like that with the wicked? No, because they're going to be left behind. So God says, we'll put this on the back burner for now. And so then you have the millennial judgment. Are you seeing how God resolves this? By the way, who's going to be convinced during the millennial judgment? The just. See that God's not leaving any stone unturned. God is not leaving any loose ends. I'm going to take care of this. And when the problem is solved, it's solved for good. Evil will not surface a second time. Only once. No more. You know, I can really respect a God who is wise, who takes his time. God doesn't rush. If God rushed, he would make mistakes. God says, no, I'm methodically going to live a perfect life. He's going to pay for the debt of the world. I'm going to give a chance for everybody to claim him as their savior. I'm going to give them a chance to put their sins into the sanctuary. If they've done that, I'm going to open up the books and I'm going to prove that I have a right to take them to heaven. And everybody in heaven will be on the same page. And then he says, and during the millennial judgment, I'm going to explain to my people why many of those people that they thought would be here were left behind. And why many of those who are here that they thought should have stayed are here. So now it's his turn to convince the righteous. Can you respect this kind of a God? Wow! How he resolves the issue of the great controversy, the cosmic controversy. Only the Adventist church has this view. Have you read in Revelation chapter 20 verse 4 where it says that judgment was committed to those who resurrected in the first resurrection? It says judgment was committed to them. Who are they going to be judging? I'm not even reading the verses. You know that 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 3 says, Do you not know that, that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we will judge angels? Which angels? The good ones, right? Why would the good ones need a judgment? By the way, the world means the worldlings. It means those who were left behind, those who love the world and the things of the world. So during the millennium, the records will be opened and the cases of the wicked will be examined. See, they were left behind. Are they dead while they're examined? 
Are they dead, yes or no? When their cases are examined, of course. Now we can understand the verse that says, and I saw the dead who were standing before God. Who are those dead who were standing before God during the millennium? The wicked. So what happened? What are they, the souls of the dead that are standing there before God? No, what does it mean when it says that the dead were standing before God? The text explains it. It says, I saw the dead standing before God and books were opened. How do they stand before God? Through the books. In other words, now the DVD of their lives is going to be examined. Is every single one going to be examined? Is the record of the devil going to be examined? How about all, all of his angels? Absolutely. They're going to be examined. Let me ask you. Are all of the righteous that are in heaven doing this work of judgment going to be in, in complete agreement that God has been right in excluding every single one of these people from heaven? Or do you think they're going to say, now wait a minute, Lord, you made a mistake here. You should have taken this guy to heaven with you when you came again. No. Listen, this is God's great audit. I like to call it God's great, God's great audit. What does an auditor do? An auditor cooks the books, right? No, the purpose of an auditor is to, to announce if the accounting was done correctly. I also like to call it God's instant replay. You know, you have this, this batter who bunts the ball and he runs with all he has and he gets to first base and the umpire says, Safe! Everybody boos. What do they do? An instant replay to see if the umpire got it right. The umpire does not change the play. The purpose of the umpire is to show if the play was called correctly. So it is with God. God simply shows the lives of the wicked and he says, Was, was my accounting done correctly? Did I, call, did I call them out correctly? And all of the righteous are going to say, what? You got it right. Are the heavenly beings also going to see that God got it right? So you got it right. Is that going to help to tie up the loose ends? Are there going to be people in heaven that we never expected to see there? Are there people that we expected to see there that will not be there? Do we need an explanation for that? Yes, because if we didn't, there would be what? Doubts. But there's still one group that remains to be persuaded. What group is that? Satan, his angels, and the wicked. Is God going to open the records before them to show them why they were condemned? Go with me to Revelation. Wow, time flies. Revelation 20. Pardon me? <laughs> All right. 
but I think the recording, I can't go more than an hour and 20 minutes because, are you doing them MP3s or? Okay, good, I'm glad. I've got permission from the boss. Okay, Revelation chapter 20. Yeah, because there's some tremendous things here that I want to share with you before we close. Verse 13. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. What, what is being described here where it says that the sea gave up the dead and death and Hades gave up the dead? What does that mean? They're resurrecting, right? They're resurrect. Which dead are resurrecting? The wicked, yes. And they were what? Judged, each one according to his works. Now wait a minute. So is there going to be a judgment of the wicked after they resurrect? Yes or no? According to this, yes. The records that God's people see during the millenniums are the same records that the wicked and the devil will see after the millennium. They will see each case why they were excluded from heaven. Even the, even the life of Satan and his angels will be shown in minute detail. And the amazing thing is that when the wicked see this great panorama, by the way, this is the moment of the opening of the, of the seven-sealed scroll, of Reve- the, the seven seals of Revelation, The seventh seal is broken at the second coming, but the scroll is opened after the millennium. The scroll is the panoramic view that Ellen White describes in Great Controversy. She says, beginning with the days of Adam, the history of the world is shown till its very end, till the last person who lives. And the wicked are shown their lives. And the devil and his angels, their evil deeds are also revealed. And when they finish seeing the panoramic view of their lives, you have the climax where the Bible says that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Righteous and true are your ways, O God. Satan and his angels even will be forced by the force of truth to kneel and to say, Lord, you got it right. Let me ask you, is this the only moment in human history where God can destroy sin and sinners? It's the only moment. It's the only moment in history where everyone in the universe is on the same page. Even the devil, his angels, and the wicked are all in agreement in every single case that God was right in the way he dealt with every single case. Only then and there can God destroy sin and sinners and cleanse the universe. And by the way, when God destroys the wicked, it is not an arbitrary destruction because God has taken the devil to court And everyone, by the way, some people say, how is God going to burn the wicked? Oh, that's terrible. God doesn't destroy anyone. You know, there's that, this theory out there that God, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, that wasn't destroyed by God. It was destroyed by a nuclear explosion. 
You know, in the flood, you know, God didn't send the flood. He just got removed his hand and the, the devil filled the earth with water. Yeah. You think that the devil would fill the earth with water to the point that he feared his own, for his own life? The fact is that, that Ellen White takes issue with those who say this. That God cannot destroy. By the way, it's not an arbitrary decision of God. At all. In fact, the wicked beg for God to destroy them. And God respects their wishes. It's their freedom of choice. Choose life or death. They chose death. So God says, I give you what you want. They would be miserable living in the presence of a holy God. So God accedes to their wishes. And God destroys them. And God will have a clean universe. Like at the beginning, with no sin and sinners. Will sin ever rise again? Through this process, folks, through this process, God will have vaccinated the universe. Because everybody will clearly understand all the issues in the great controversy. They will understand that God is righteous and true and merciful and loving and kind and benevolent and has all of these wonderful virtues and that a life of independence from God is misery and destruction and unhappiness. Who will ever want to experiment with sin again? It would be insane. Nobody will ever want to experiment with sin again. That's why it says that affliction will not arise a second time in Obadiah 16. Now, allow me in closing to share some information with you. There's this theory in the Adventist church. You know, we, we, we're experts at uh, developing these theories that are passed along from generation to generation. One of those theories is that the devil dies when he and the wicked are attacking the New Jerusalem. The fact is that if you read Great Controversy and you read Ezekiel 28, there is never an attack of the New Jerusalem. The wicked die attacking Satan and his angels. You see, if they attack the Holy City, that would, that would simply show that they still thought that those who were inside were the bad people. But the fact that they attacked Satan and his angels... See, Ellen White says that after the great panoramic view, the wicked finally, for the first time in their lives, they see things clearly now. Man, they say, this deceiver, he had us so fooled that they were the bad guys and we were the good guys. Man, now we see what, what a rascal you are. And so Ellen White says that they turn upon Satan and his angels. Ezekiel 28 describes that. It's an amazing moment. But then, you know, before they're able to do their work, fire descends from heaven and consumes them. Yes. Oh, absolutely. That's stage one of Armageddon. Yes. Stage one of Armageddon. You know, all of those individuals who who go to these mega churches and, oh, this wonderful preacher, look at, he heals people and he slays people in the spirit. And, you know, they, they think that, that this preacher is the greatest, but he says, you know, you're supposed to keep Sunday in honor of the resurrection. And, and, you know, the day is coming when all those people who crowned that minister with laurels will arise to annihilate them, Ellen White says. That's why it's a big responsibility to be a pastor. 
Woe to a pastor who stands up and starts entertaining the congregation and telling them pretty stories. Because someday the Lord is going to hold us accountable for the loss of souls. That's why it's better to be a little politically incorrect than to be politically correct and lead to the loss of souls. It's a terrible thing. You know, once a soul is lost, it can never be recovered. It's an eternal loss. You know, if we looked at souls that way, we would work more for them. Each soul that is lost is irreplaceable. It's an eternal loss. Ellen White says that one soul is more precious than a whole world with all of its treasures. One soul. Why do we struggle so much to build houses and have automobiles and money in the bank instead of investing in God's cause, in that which is going to shine throughout eternity? Listen, everything we have on this earth is going to burn. The more we have, the more we have to burn. But the souls that we've unto the kingdom through our talents and our time and our strength and our material resources will last throughout eternity. They'll shine throughout eternity. So what should we be investing in? We should be investing in God's kingdom. Many times I think that we're not really serious that we're going to heaven soon when I look at the way God's saints live. You know, who needs a house with 20 bedrooms? Why do we need to drive? I hope I don't offend anybody. A Mercedes when we could drive a Pontiac. Why not take the, the money, the extra money that we would have paid for the Mercedes and put it into the church? Would that be a much better investment? Let me ask you, will a Pontiac get you from point A to point B the same as a Mercedes? Well, yeah, but it doesn't have the same status. Who cares about status? Now, let me finish by saying one further thing. And then, then tomorrow we're going to deal with a few more issues concerning the cosmic conflict. And, and I'll share my, my presentation on the book of Job. It's a fascinating presentation. Uh, it puts everything that we've studied together, all of the issues, how the sin problem is going to finally be resolved, etc. But the period between when the holy city descends and when the wicked are destroyed is considerably longer than what we have generally thought. You know, usually we think the city descends, the wicked are resurrected, they attack the city, and fire descends from heaven, and everything is taken care of. But the fact is that that period between when the city descends and when the wicked are destroyed is much longer than what we have generally thought. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, for several reasons. Number one, all of the infrastructure of the world has been destroyed by the second coming of Christ. Right? The earth is without form and void, desolate. Are the wicked going to attack the holy city without weapons? No, in fact, Ellen White says that they take time to create powerful weapons of warfare. How long is that going to take? Think they're going to attack the city with bows and arrows? <laughs> I don't think so. Ellen White says that, that the first thing the devil does is hold consultation with, with his angels. Then he consults with the kings of the earth. 
Then they start organizing the largest military in the history of the world. In fact, Ellen White says that that army, which will finally be prepared to attack the Holy City, will be composed of more people than all of the soldiers that have fought in all of the wars in the history of planet Earth. She says in the last chapter of Great Controversy, millions, as the sand of the sea, Revelation 20 says. And Ellen White says that when they, when they march towards the city, when they have plans to attack it, she says that they march with military precision. They must have gone to boot camp. They've been organized into companies, she says. How long does it take to organize a military of millions of soldiers? To create weapons of warfare when the infrastructure of the world has been destroyed. And then furthermore, they're going to see what we saw during the thousand years. So it's going to be a much longer period than what we've generally assumed. And then, I'll just close by mentioning this, that the destruction of the wicked is going to take a lot longer than what we've generally assumed also. Say, how's that? I'm not going to read the quotations, but I'm going to just mention them. They're in early writings. Ellen White says that everyone will be punished according to their works. The Bible teaches that too. There will be differing, differing lengths of punishment. Because it wouldn't be just to punish someone who ran a red light and someone who killed someone with a death penalty. Are you following me or not? Ellen White says that some sinners will suffer many days. Listen to this. Some sinners will suffer many days for their sins that they did not place in the sanctuary. Many days. Now the devil, he's going to suffer not only for all of his, but for all of the sins of the righteous. How long is he going to suffer? If a common ordinary sinner suffers many days for his sins... How long is the devil going to suffer for all of the sins of all of the righteous plus all of his own? A long, long, long time. Ellen White says that after the last sinner goes out, she says Satan and his angels would live much longer to continue suffering. Oh, this is barbarous. Punishment is according to your works. They didn't have to suffer this. Could they have been saved? Of course they could have. They accepted Christ. But they chose destruction. And so, you know, you have this difficult text in Revelation 20, verse 10, where it says that the devil will be cast into the fire... And he will burn forever and ever. Well, if you go to my website, you'll notice two pages of quotations from non-Adventist scholars. Where they say that, the, that this expression forever and ever simply means a very long period of time whose end is not in view. But not necessarily unending. 
which seems to indicate that the suffering of Satan is going to be for a very long period of time. And some people say, oh, well, that's, that's terrible, that's grotesque. Listen, let me ask you, what's worse? To believe that each person is going to burn according to their works or to believe that they're going to burn forever? Well, what do you think? What's worse? How's much worse? If all are going to burn forever, then Hitler is going to suffer the same punishment as everybody else. Is there any justice in that? There's no justice in that. So the fact is that, that people are going to be punished according to their works, different degrees, differing lengths of punishment. But eventually, after a long period of time, the fire will go out. And everyone will be reduced to ashes, and then God will make a new heavens and a new earth. And Ellen White says that while the fires were destroying the wicked and the earth, God's people dwelt safely inside the new Jerusalem. You know, there's this difficult text in Isaiah 66 where it says that we'll come from month to month and from Sabbath to Sabbath to worship before the Lord. We love to use that text as Adventists to prove Sabbath observance in heaven or in the new earth. See, it says that we're going to come from, from new moon to new moon, which means month, from month to month and from Sabbath to Sabbath to worship before the Lord. But then we hope that people don't see verse 24. <laughs> where it says and they shall go forth after they go from month to month and from Sabbath to Sabbath they shall go forth and they shall see the corpses of those who sinned against the Lord their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched so they're going to burn at least for weeks and months according to that text you say well that one doesn't apply on what basis, on what principle can you say that 22 and 23 apply and 24 doesn't? What person in their right mind is going to ever accept your argument on that? No one. The fact is that the destruction of the wicked is going to take a lot longer than what we have generally assumed, but praise the Lord that eventually the wicked will be reduced to ashes. By the way, the biblical proof that the devil, that the expression that the devil is cast in the fire and he will be tormented forever and ever, the, the, it's very clear that forever and ever doesn't mean unending because in Ezekiel 28 it says, you will be reduced to ashes and never more shalt thou be. So you have a contradiction in scripture if you don't understand it in this fashion. Are you following me or not? And then God's people, by the way, if you really want to throw people for a loop, tell them, it's not the wicked who are going to live in the everlasting flames, it's the righteous. You say, what? Where does the Bible say that? In Isaiah 33. It says that the righteous will live with the everlasting burnings because the fire is God. God is the consuming fire. Isn't that what the Bible teaches? God is the everlasting fire. And only those who have a fireproof character will live with God who is a consuming fire. So they just got it wrong. They got the wrong people in the fire. And it'll be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Isaiah 33 verses... Well, let's finish by reading that. It's a good way to end. Isaiah 33... In verse 14. 
The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with a devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? By the way, the word dwell there is a Hebrew word that means that exactly. Dwelling. Permanently. Notice the answer. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly. He who despises the gain of oppressions, who gestures with his hands, refusing bribes, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed, and shuts his eyes from seeing evil. So who are the ones who are going to be in the fires? The righteous. The churches have it wrong. And let me just end with this one comment that comes to mind. I know I've been ending for a while. But, you know, my wife tells me, You're, you end about 20 times before you end. And that's true. Because as I'm speaking, you know, new things that I don't have in my notes keep on coming to my mind. Uh, but, you know, when you, when you talk about the, the fire, the righteous living in the fire, the fact is that when the, when the Bible uses the expression that, the wick, that Satan is thrown into the eternal fire, and that, the, and that the wicked are going to be destroyed with everlasting fire. The fact is that the fire is everlasting. But not that which the fire burns. So don't argue when people say, well it says very clearly there that they're cast into the eternal fire. You say, yeah, the fire, not them. The fire is eternal because God is the fire. And God is eternal. But the eternal fire destroys them and reduces them to ashes. Are you with me? And then God will have a clean universe. Praise the Lord. Well, I hope to see you all tomorrow. Don't miss. It's going to be good. I can assure you. That one on Job is, brings it all together. It's spectacular. Uh, so don't miss it. Pass the word along. Try to recruit people to come. And uh, we'll deal with these issues tomorrow. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity of studying these magnificent truths that you have given to the Adventist church. Father, we realize that when sin is over, you will have a clean universe. You're not going to have a corner somewhere where the wicked are going to be screaming throughout eternity in the flames. You will have a universe where sin has been eradicated totally and completely forever. Father, we ask that you will help us to get rid of sin in our lives. That you, through your Holy Spirit, will cleanse our lives through the fire, the divine spiritual fire of the Spirit. Cleanse sin from our lives, that we might prepare to live with the Holy God. We ask, Lord, that you will continue blessing all of our activities today. You'll bless each seminar. That you will bless each speaker. Lord, that we might return to our homes uh, on fire for you to finish your work so that we can go home. We thank you, Father, for having been with us and thank you for hearing and answering our prayer. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse and Hope Media Ministry for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to listen to more great media like this presentation or if you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. You can also find great witnessing media at audioverse.org and at hopevideo.com.